You're listening to the Royal Society of Medicine Digital Health Council podcast, where we explore health tech innovations that are transforming healthcare. With me, your host, Dr. Annabelle Painter. Welcome back to the podcast. In this episode, we focus on the technology that's powering PIFU, patient-initiated follow-up. And joining me is the lovely Tom Witcher, the CEO and co-founder of Dr. Doctor. In our conversation, we discuss how technology-enabled PIFU pathways are helping patients, clinicians, and healthcare systems. We talk about how a data-driven approach is enabling personalised patient appointment booking and outpatient care. And we cover how PIFU technology can help to even out the variability in care experienced within the NHS. I really enjoyed discussing this topic with Tom and hearing about his vision for how changes in systems and clinical workflows could be enabled by technology and make tangible improvements to how we deliver care. Hello, Tom. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Annabelle. Lovely to see you. So to start us off, could you begin by introducing yourself, telling us a bit about you and a bit about what led you to setting up Dr. Doctor? Sure. So my name is Tom Witcher. I'm one of the three founding members of Dr. Doctor and currently the CEO. My background is a bit unusual. I'm not a medic. I'm an engineer. I actually studied naval architecture at university. I wanted to be a yacht designer of all things. I was obsessed by the sea and the water. So I studied that. It turns out that not many people turn up to have careers in yacht design. So I ended up being a a management consultant of all things, mostly doing process improvement. So where I met my co-founder, Ranesh and Perrin, me and Ranesh literally met on an onion peeling production line, making onion rings for McCain's and chopping up vegetables for New Covent Garden Soup. And uh, it taught me a lot about process and how to sort of make things more efficient, but not a lot about healthcare. And then... I ended up being literally sent to Coventry and doing a piece of work in Coventry Hospital, consulting in outpatients. Didn't know anything about health. In all honesty, I actually didn't really want to go and do that piece of work. I was much more interested in kind of factories and fast moving consumer goods. But once I got there, I got a bit obsessed, if I'm honest. And I just loved like the interplay between people and process that you get in health that you don't get anywhere else. You know, it's it's a people business first and foremost. And I I think that's something you don't realise until you spend a bit of time sat in clinic watching all the interactions that go on. That was 2010, probably. And it was just about the time that we all started getting iPhones. The iPhone came out in 2007. I had just got one. And I remember kind of thinking to myself, this is crazy that there's all these patients turning up. They've got bits of paper. There's, There's, you know, people trying to run an efficient outpatient service. On one hand, there's patients desperate to get care. On the other hand, there's frustrating clinicians in the middle. And no one's using any technology to kind of try and solve that problem. And there was a there was a sort of moment of clarity, I think, when there was one specific outpatient clinic that ran and like it, it had been cancelled, but the letters hadn't gone out. And I was sat in outpatients watching something else and like all these patients turning up one after the other and getting angry with the receptionist because they thought there was a clinic running and there wasn't. I just thought it's going to be a better way of doing this. So we, we set the business up in, in 2012 with a hypothesis that you could get patients to put their own outpatient app and by doing that improve experience and quality. 
turns out booking outpatient appointments is like really difficult like a really non-trivial problem and and 10 years later we're still trying to solve it luckily what we actually did was we got an accelerator called Bethlehem Adventures which is a social impact accelerator still really close to love their their mission and sort of turned up the first day of that and got taught about going and doing user research so we had a bit of a tame client in Frimley Heather and Wexham Park as it was then but now part of Frimley Health and the guys at Frimley basically said yeah we've got a bit of an issue with DNAs come and come and see if you can help us it was in physio and we did a load and load and load of user research just talking to patients and what patients told us is actually rather than being able to like book an appointment what we'd love to know is is it still happening what time is it and can I change your cancel if the time doesn't suit me so we built the first version of our product on text messaging and it was literally a reminder message which is obviously now a really common thing but with the ability to transact so text back change or text back cancel and by doing that we managed to reduce DNAs in that service from sort of ten and a half percent down to about four percent really improved the clinic throughput and got great patient feedback scores so that was like v 0.01 of our product essentially and yeah ever since then we've been been working on how do you make it easier to access outpatient services make the appointments more valuable and make sure that yeah like the slots we do have on clinics get used effectively essentially that story resonates with me in many ways the experience of sitting in the healthcare setting and being baffled by the lack of technology in there and therefore seeing how it's such fertile ground for innovation it's definitely something I felt when I was working initially in the in the NHS as a junior doctor and spurned my interest in in digital health and I also think what you've talked through there about the user focus and the need to to really hear where the pain points are for the users is so so important when developing something within the digital health space and finally just that actually you don't need necessarily really sophisticated technology solutions you need to have solutions that are simple easy to use accessible and I think you've described quite well there how you managed to do that when you first set up your product with Dr Doctor. But today we are talking specifically about PIFU. Mm-hmm. So Tom, could you please tell us what is PIFU and why did you get into working with PIFU? Sure. So, you know, everyone loves an acronym, right? And PIFU stands for Patient Initiated Follow-Up Appointments. You can also do Patient Initiated New Appointments. In fact, you know, happens in GP all the time, right? But you can also do that in secondary care. And actually, PIFU is something which we've been doing in the NHS for a really long time. So, you know, if somebody comes to fracture clinic, you take the cast off and you send them home and say to them, only come back if you've got some pain, that's a patient-initiated follow-up appointment. It's just a patient-initiated follow-up appointment without any governance and without any risk management. And that that is like, that's really common, actually, in lots of scenarios. We, we view PIFU as using some sort of digital tool to allow patients to come back for follow-up based on either their own need or some kind of triage or stratification and we can talk about that in some detail later those second two bits being really important this isn't just about like opening a tap it's about doing something a bit more nuanced the reason we got into it is that obviously during covid we all know what happened to the elective backlog and we've been thinking you know almost from day one because we we primarily do outpatient activity and most outpatients stopped actually like for the first part of the pandemic doctor doctor 
we kind of sat there and went, how can we help? And like most people, we launched a video product and we launched some sort of communication products, but it didn't play to our core strengths. But what we could see very early on is this huge rising backlog, even before it hit the papers. So we started thinking about what can we do to help trusts recover? And it became really apparent to us that PIFU was one of the areas where you could make a really big difference. We'd done a pilot in Nottingham pre-pandemic in, in breast cancer services, which was a type of gated PIFU, so using an assessment triage to monitor how patients were getting on using structured form. And that we, in that we saw a 60% reduction in face-to-face, not moving to video, but like a 60 like reduction in activity and a big uptick in patient experience. So we had like some early evidence that this was a good thing to do. So we started putting product development and thinking behind it as soon as we could really. And it became apparent that it was one of the few things that you can do to make a genuine difference to, to demand on services. So it's something that I'm really passionate about. I think it can make a massive difference to not just to like demand, but I, I think you can also improve clinical quality and patient experience if you do PIFI really well. So there's lots of reasons to do it. So from a practical point of view, can you talk us through what would a PIFI pathway look like in a clinical setting? So you're mentioning there about, say, breast services. What does that yeah. actually look like for a breast service patient, for a clinician and, and for the healthcare team? So you see someone in clinic as per normal and then make an outcome decision, which is rather than I'm going to follow you up in, in a couple of months time, a couple of weeks time instead you say I'm gonna put you onto a patient initiated follow-up pathway and ideally sort of give the patient some information about what that means point them at the web URL and then there's different types of kind of risk management you can put around that so you could have what we call an SOS or a C on symptoms PIFU which is you say to them if you have specific symptoms go online and there's like a really short form which is linked to whatever it is you know if you have certain pain or or fever or whatever click those buttons and then we'll allow you to book in for a follow-up there's see on need which is which is much more you just request me if you need me so a really good example of that would be ibd you know if you have a flare-up see on need you know go online click the buttons i trust you you're going to need me then and those, those so those are the two core ones and then the, the one which it's sort of straying more into remote monitoring but I think is really interesting is this idea of kind of like a longitudinal study where you're constantly asking patients to fill out a validated form the prom and based on the scores that come on back on that you sort of allocate them into a red amber green risk box and you do something like you say everybody who comes back red book them in for a follow-up everyone who's amber ask for more information or maybe make a phone call and check how they're doing and everyone who's green doesn't get doesn't get an appointment so it's kind of like three levels of PIFU depending on depending on how much risk management you want to put around it and what it's really all about is trying to get the the high value patients in first so take the IBD example you know making sure that you're seeing people who have a problem when they have a problem not seeing people every six months because that's what the diary dictates and actually, you know, they're going to turn up and say, you know, what, I've been absolutely fine. I really, I really don't need you. But then three weeks later, they're, they're desperate to come in and have the meds changed. I think there's this phrase that I find very helpful when introducing new technologies or new ways of working into healthcare, which is that everyone has to win. So mm. if we're introducing a new system and way of working that has to benefit patients, that also has to benefit the clinician and it has to benefit the system. And if any of those are missing, 
often it doesn't succeed. So with that in mind, in the context of FIFU, how do you feel it benefits each one of those groups? Yeah. So certainly from the point of view of system, we know that we can take a significant amount of demand out. Now, as always with our lovely NHS, I mean, you have to make sure your, your incentives are aligned and you know where organisations are being paid per follow-up, sometimes taking follow-ups out is a negative. Mm. Um, but in most organisations at the moment, because of the size of the elective recovery challenge, actually removing follow-up demand so we can put more news in and therefore improve your need to follow-up ratio, is considered a really positive thing. And there's a lot of focus on that from the centre at the moment. So that's one of the main system benefits. From a patient point of view, it's a fantastic thing because, you know, you're being seen when you have need. And, you know, I've always been this massive advocate for patient empowerment. I think it's really important that we give people more agency in their care. It's shown that if you give people more agency in their care, they're more likely to adhere, they're more likely to have good outcomes. So sort of that point of actually, like, I trust you, go away and come back if you need me is a really powerful one. It it takes a real mindset shift from everybody. But if you get there, everybody's happier. And then the point of actually, if I do really need you knowing you're there is is massive to patients as well. You know, I'm I'm not just a number in the system and, you know, I'm in loads of pain and I know I can't be seen for six months. Actually, there's somebody who will listen to me and will find time for me if, if I feel it's urgent. And that's a really important part of this, because if you only do half of the if you don't allow patients a way to quickly access care when they need it and you just use triage people feel like you're taking care away from them and it's about a a two-way relationship and then the final bit of this there's a great video case study of this on our website from the nottingham case study actually there's a lady called sibby who's a breast cancer patient and she talks about the fact that she was on an ongoing monitoring pathway it meant that she wasn't coming in every week for an appointment to the hospital which meant it was more likely she could pick her kids up and it meant she could, you know, the word she used was it meant I could be a person, not a patient. And I think that is really important, to, you know, like when you have something like cancer, that it takes over your whole life. And anything we can do to just keep, give people like a sense of non- normality back is important. And then from the clinical side, and this is the place which is kind of the most exciting because everybody's feeling the pressure of the backlog, you know, and the, and having to run more clinics and, you know, the seems like there's an almost infinite demand on people's time. And what we can do with really great properly configured PIFU is bring in the interesting patients that really need help, keep everybody else at home, and then ideally get to a place where you can spend longer with those patients that need the time. So rather than having to fit, you know, 15 patients in for 10 minutes each, you can see five patients for 20 minutes each, it's a much better structure for a clinic, much better structure for a clinic. And uh, you know, it makes for a less stressful day. It makes for a more interesting day. It allows everyone to operate at the top of their practice all the time, which I think is something we should be driving for. But it also means that those patients get better outcomes because you know, the, the, one of the major challenges with follow-up booking particularly is if you fully book all your follow-up clinics, what tends to happen is you, know, you can't slot a patient in sooner unless you fit them in the end of the clinic and work late or early and start early because there isn't any capacity and you have this also this massive challenge which is like you know if you're booking clinics six months out and you book some holiday you want to take a day of study leave all of those patients get cancelled what happens to them does everybody get moved back do those patients get moved to the back of the queue in which case instead of following them up at three months you follow them up at six or nine which is terrible for outcomes 
And so the whole model of like, you know, fully booking every single patient for follow up is a terrible one from a kind of flexibility point of view. So by moving to a much more data driven model, you can massively increase flexibility and therefore outcomes. And I think that can only be a good thing. So on the topic of data driven, I'm intrigued as to whether you have any data from your deployments of PIFU within the NHS that can support the use of it. Is there any evidence at the moment that you've gathered about improvements in any of those areas? So patient outcomes, clinician availability or system efficiency? Mm. Most of the data we have is around system efficiency. We have, at any one point, we've got a couple of thousand, we call them a patient a pathway, which is a sort of a, a PIFU service, basically. And we'll have on average sort of 20 to 50,000 live patients you know, actively on a PIFU at any one time, usually. And those numbers are growing all the time. It's, been a, it's actually been a hockey stick ever since January. It's like really driven. It was a couple of hundred patients six months ago, and it's now, you know, thousands live at any point, which is quite cool. We typically see... And this is like changes hugely by specialty, right? But on average, we see a 75% avoidance ratio. So only one in four of those appointments actually ends up translating to a face-to-face, which is a huge avoidance ratio. Do you mean of one in four of people who contact the PIFU service will convert it So if you have 20,000 people that you've put on a PIFU pathway, 5,000 of them end up being face-to-face appointments. Mm-hmm. 15,000 uh, stay at home. Doesn't mean that they haven't had any contact because it might be that you've mm-hmm. done a sort of a text message or, a, or some kind of check-in digitally, but only 5,000 of them actually face-to-face. So it's a huge reduction in activity, which is worth, you know, hundreds of thousands of pounds to the average organisation. And so there's there's really material benefits to this sort of stuff if you get it, if you get it live. The other really interesting thing is we... We always measure our patient and clinician satisfaction on a net promoter score and we get, you know, it's, it's, it's out of five. And I think it's like 4.2 for, for patients and four for clinicians. So there's like a really positive experiential score that goes alongside this as well. The challenge with all of these things is we talked a lot about like the clinical flexibility, for example, to get this stuff working at scale does require kind of a wholesale configuration of the way clinics work. And, and that is that's tough. So although we've got, you know, thousands of people using this any time and obviously they roll on and roll off, right? So it's kind of the scale we should be talking is millions and lots of our organisations are really keen to do this at scale, but it's it's the activation energy of getting it going and, the, and getting the clinical leadership and like aligning the organisation behind these new models, which is which is tough, as I'm sure you know. Well, I mean, this is this is something that I talk about a lot and I think comes up all the time in discussions about health technology, which is it's one thing having good technology. But I feel like what really matters is the implementation and the system change and the workflow change that comes with introducing that technology. If you get that right and you introduce it in the right way, these technologies Mm. can be amazing. But if they're just dropped in without that configuration, then they can be a disaster. And I think quite a good example of that is to thinking about EPRs and there's data that's been published about the usability of EPRs. And if you look at this yeah. data, what's quite interesting is that the same EPR in different trusts will get very different rankings and ratings in terms of user experience. And mm. what's different about the trust is how they have 
educated and trained the clinicians to use that EPR or how it integrates with other software in the system or how it's built into workflows. And, you know, that's true of EPRs, but I think it's true of all healthcare technology. And I think you just, you know, explained that quite clearly about how important that is with PIFU as well. It is. And one of the things that we we realised really early on in our scaling journey was exactly as you said, if you just put a technology in place, you, you, you don't make an impact. And I think the NHS is littered with examples of that. So there was two two things we put a lot of effort into. The first one was actually building a sustainable model of change for this. So we always start with what I consider problem number one, which is distribution. Like how do you get how do you get these digital interventions in the hands of patients in a repeatable way? Like that's that's often undervalued and so important. If you think about the effort that like you know social media companies put into reducing friction that we should be doing the same with our digital health products and so rule one is get distribution make it frictionless make it easy for patients to use make it work for a really wide range of patients as well so no one gets left behind absolutely critical the other part is is exactly like you said it's the process and clinical and operational change so we uh, we got to the point where we actually like we don't do deployments without support at doctor doctor and we have kind of two two forms of kind of implementation support. We've got our, our transformation team who basically, when you go live, they go and do a clinic build and all the configuration and training and you know make sure that everybody in the organization understands what the product is and how it helps and what it does. And then we have what we call our proactive support team. So they they sit in our office here in London or at home, increasingly at home, and, and monitor our internal performance dashboards. And so if you're running a PIFU service in room, for example, there will be one of our success teams will be looking at those numbers and if the uptake isn't what we expected or the numbers are going the wrong way and we'll reach out to the service manager and say look, looks like looks like you're not getting the sort of results we'd expect here can we can we sort of talk you through perhaps making some configuration changes to improve uptake and that's something which we've found is really really vital to get scale and to get the return on investment that is really important from these products I'm interested to dig into the weeds a bit about how PIFU is implemented in the context of I think there are sometimes some challenges that come alongside PIFU that would be interesting to discuss. And one of them links back to what you were talking about as a big positive of PIFU, which is this sense of contact us, I trust you. Now, as a clinician... I, on one hand, I'm like, that's brilliant. On the other hand, I, it terrifies me because we know of the patients who are, you know, the frequent attenders, the people who would be seen by their GP every day if they could, who call really frequently. And so I'm interested in the context of patient-initiated follow-up. How do we manage that demand? Mm-hmm. And so it's a really good question. It's a really good question. And it's it's also important. So this this also like plays to the whole risk management thing, because you also have patients who'll never get in touch. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, because they're for whatever reason. The other the other interesting thing I always talk about when, when we talk about the risk is it's really interesting if you look at the variation in follow-up rates between say an F1, a registrar and a consultant. Yeah. Because the F1 is going to bring everybody back. Mm-hmm. Um, and the consultant will bring back fewer people and and if you plot that data doesn't matter which specialty it doesn't matter which organization it is always the same so we have this like variation in how we manage risk anyway and what we can do with digital is we can try and standardize that yeah do you know what I love that you brought that up because it's something that I also really like to talk about which is that 
we often think about how do technology compare to current clinical practice as if current clinical practice is this like homogenous you know everyone does the same thing there's a doctor that makes the doctor decision and in reality there's huge variation in what doctors do not only based on their seniority or experience as you describe but also just people's inherent risk appetite so I think we have huge variability in the system that is never really talked about and accounted for. And actually, I think technology has a huge role to play in standardising that. I completely agree with you that the amazing thing is we can help you know, the people who have a lower risk tolerance actively manage that risk because we can give them the data. And perhaps somebody who is a bit more laissez-faire, for whatever reason, we can, again, like give them the tools to bring a bit more control to their practice. So like, there's loads we can do with that. And then to your point of if you're going to trust the patient, how do you deal with the kind of frequent flyers versus the I won't engage? This is this is where technology comes into its own, because what you can do is you can standardise what good looks like, but then you can vary on an individual basis what the experience those patients get. So let's take the example of the person who's a frequent flyer. So you can, if you know, either you know that they're like that or the technology can pick up on this, you can set rules. So you can say, if this person has booked more than four appointments in the last month, just arbitrary number, right? Do not allow them to self-book. Instead, you know, send them through a through either a triage or send them straight to the booking center to actually have a conversation. On the other on the other hand, if you have someone who's never engaged with the system, and often those patients patients get lost, is it the really interesting thing? You know, the person who doesn't turn up until it's too late in AE, and that is, you know, a huge issue, as we all know. What you can say is who are the outliers here that are technically under my under my list, but I haven't seen for a year. And let's not let them self-book. We're going to force book them. We're going to send them an appointment letter. We're going to make sure that they come in. And you can automate that process as well. So you can take both sets of outliers and you can put different rules around them so that the person who's forever requesting an appointment actually has a lot more gating and a lot more. And you can use forms, right? So you can you can make sure that you're collecting information about them. They only get seen when they need to be seen. And then the people at the other end get, don't get lost. So that's that's something which we do using the technology. And we've actually taken that to a to the next level recently by building some artificial intelligence around looking at people that don't turn up at clinic. Mm. Uh, so this is this has been fascinating. So it was funded by the Accelerated Access Collaborative, and we've looked at data across all of our organizations. So it's something like 96 million NHS outpatient appointments over over 10 years and we've looked at all of those patients and we've looked at the factors that mean that they don't turn up and what we're now doing is we're providing a clinic list and next to the clinic list we give a did not will not attend confidence score from 0 to 100 mm. and so what you can do is you can either say right well I've got you know three patients here that have got over 90% did not attend likelihood I can ask someone from the admin team to ring them up I can send them an extra text message. I can double book that appointment. I can book them a taxi to make sure that they absolutely do come. You know, whatever you need to do, all the way down to the other end of the spectrum, which is we know this person's going to come, so let's definitely not double book that appointment, you know. And that allows us to make much more personalised decisions about each one of those people, rather than just viewing all patients as the same. A bit like all clinicians are not the same, all patients are not the same. But the data allows us to give those people different experiences. And the same is true for PIFU. So we're, we're just at the beginning of this journey, but again, applying personalization to the to what you get as a patient based on what we know about you. So it might be that you're someone who 
never really transacts digitally. Our data shows that you always end up ringing up. So we assign you a, okay, cool, always send this person a paper letter. They make sure they get a phone call that matters to them. Maybe they're a bit elderly and they like to double check everything as they expected. And they get a path that looks like that. Whereas someone who has never picked up the phone, you know, always always logs in for the appointment, you, you set their personalization up differently. And so that's that's what's really powerful here is if you're starting to manage millions of patients, you should not expect them all to want the same sort of communication and to have the same set of access rules and, and access policies. You do it based on them and their their own needs. And I think that's super exciting. It's kind of where we want to get to with this, this idea of kind of a personalised outpatient journey based on your needs and your preferences. Yeah, that's so interesting. I think often digital technologies are criticised for exactly that reason, that they leave people behind, that they are most likely to be used by people who are young and fit and intellectually able to engage with technology. And those other groups might get excluded and left behind. So it's always so important to make sure that we build in pathways that that meet the needs of everyone. And I'm interested, you were talking earlier about how you might have patients who are frequent attenders or those that never engage and that those never engage, you, you might need these kind of routine appointments still booked in for these like safety net appointments, I think they're sometimes called. But do you, do you think there's still a risk there that those people get a substandard service, especially if, for example, the reason that they're not engaging might be because they don't speak English as a first language or they don't have access to the Internet or other factors that mean that they cannot engage in these digital pathways in the same way? It's something which I think everybody in digital health should always have front of mind. And it's, you know, as we've sort of touched upon, it's you can't put any generalities around it. You know, people always used to say, what about the elderly? Well, actually, you know, that's nonsense because lots of older people love using technology. Mm. You know, and I, I always talk about a lady who actually I met her from me again, who who told me she this is pre-pandemic. She was like, oh, you know, we've been doing Skype coffee mornings with the ladies for years now because, you know, I struggle to leave the house. It's like. You know, people love this stuff mm. um, it's not, and it's not based necessarily on how old you are or or anything else. What is true, though, is you have to design a holistic system that works for everyone. And what we've seen is if you design really great digital interfaces, which are easy to use, highly accessible. And I think that's something that often gets forgotten as well. You know, you have to think about accessibility. Does this thing work with a screen reader? You know what's the what's the reading age etc but if you design really accessible services we tend to find between 70 80 percent of patients in an outpatient list will engage in digital first way so you've got let's let's say it's 70 percent. let's say you get 30 percent of people that don't a bit like we were talking about with digitally driven follow-ups suddenly because most people are doing their appointment booking and their change and cancel and everything else online, preclinic information online, the number of phone calls coming into the hospital massively drops, which means if you're sat in a booking centre, A, you could probably get through at last, because let's be honest, I don't know if you've tried, it's it's pretty tough. Mm-hmm. But when you do get through, the person on the other end of the phone has a bit more time. So they can talk to you about the fact that you need some transport booking or they can help you get an interpreter if you need that. So by sort of digitising the process or so 70, 80 percent of people, you actually help the remaining 20 as well, so long as you don't cut 
those services at the same time. And then that's the critical thing. And that's why you have to think about it as a whole whole problem. We've also seen some really interesting, it's not actually our business that does it, it's a, a business that I think is great that does primary health checks. And they, they've been working in the West Yorkshire region and they found that by, there were certain communities that weren't engaging. And so what they did was they employed someone from that community to make the phone calls. So it wasn't just that they spoke the language, it was they were from that community and they and they therefore had the trust. And it it increased the percentage of people from that particular group coming to health checks by like 85% or some crazy number, because they were speaking to someone who's, who literally spoke that language. And so when we design these services, I think we should always think about that as well. So what does great look like if you're 25 and you've got a smartphone? What does great look like if you're 85 you've got a smartphone but you have to have the font you know really large and what does it mean to be somebody who actually is never going to engage digitally at all and that's what really really good service design looks like and I think more and more people are getting that but it has to be baked in from day one. Totally agree. So to finish up what is your view of the future so let's say you're looking sort of 10-20 years into the future what would you love to see what would be your ideal way of managing patients going forward in the NHS well so we always used to talk we used to talk about virtual outpatients and how actually like the majority of the real estate I mean I'm, I'm sat in Southwark at the moment so I can see I can see Guy's Hospital you know on a, on a massively valuable piece of real estate and to think that tens of thousands of people turn up every month there for an outpatient appointment is a bit crazy when actually we could be seeing those people remotely we could be seeing them closer to their homes and so this idea of like re yeah like using real estate much more effectively I think is is big but we've stopped calling it virtual outpatients now we've started calling it hybrid care for all the reasons I just talked about because actually what really good looks like is getting the people who need to be seen face to face in front of the right person effectively when they need them and using data and using digital to triage and stratify and make sure that you know the process is really efficient but when they do sit down with their doctor or with their healthcare professional that they have time with that person in an appropriate environment where nobody is feeling stressed and you feel like you can have a, a human conversation taking us all the way back to what we started at the beginning healthcare is a, is a, is a people business and the digital stuff should be transparent really and it should be about making sure that as a patient, you get seen effectively by somebody who's got time to really care for you. And so you get great outcomes. That's really what we want more than anything else, you know. And ultimately, I think if we get it right, we can make healthcare sustainable. If we keep going as we are, it just isn't right. Like we can't, we can't keep going and just pushing more patients through the doors every day. So I think that's the prize. Definitely. And it was a very encouraging and optimistic view of the future so thank you for that Tom. and thank you so much for coming on the podcast it's been such a delight speaking to you so thank you so much for your time no problem at all it's a real pleasure Annabelle and thank you for having me